Last week, we began our fall preaching series, which we've entitled Living the Mission. And we started in the Old Testament with Jeremiah. We were specifically looking at chapter 29, and it gave us insight into how the people of God have always been expected to live out the mission in the midst of deteriorating and challenging times. And so we concluded during that um, message that the mission of the kingdom of God is not so much about wanting to change our culture before we can accomplish or in order to accomplish what God has called us to do, but rather to carry out the mission of God while in the midst of a dark and deteriorating culture. The theme of our series this fall will simply be, if we are going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. And so today we're going to consider what Jesus declared his mission to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And then in the weeks that follow, we're going to see how he lived out the mission that he declares in this passage as we take a closer look at some examples throughout the gospel of Luke. Back in August, when we started our vacation, our family started our vacation, uh, Jennifer and I actually did a one-week vacation alone, which was very rare to do that, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Now, St. John's, Newfoundland was our home for 12 years. Two of our three children were born there. We have a lot of friends there. We have, a lot, we have family in the area. And so whenever we go back to visit, it's actually typically a pretty economical vacation because you stay with family and friends, you drive their car, you eat their food, and, but the downside is it never really feels much like a vacation. So we decided that we were going to do a week as tourists. And so we told family and friends, we didn't tell most we were even coming, but the ones that knew we were coming, we just said, listen, we, we, this is how we're doing this, and you know, we'll catch up with you another time, but we're we really don't want to see you and have anything to do with you during this week. And um, so we had checked into a historic B&B in downtown St. John's, rented our own car, and planned our days as we wanted to, eating where and what we wanted whenever we wanted to do it. Well, on one particular day, we were exploring some little towns just outside of St. John's, and we ended up in a small little town called Flat Rock. If you ever went there, you know why they called it that. And uh, the highlight sort of point to visit in this little town of Flat Rock is a place called Our Lady of Lords Grotto. And uh, a little bit of a history here, Father William Sullivan from the St. Michael's Parish in Flat Rock went on a pilgrimage to a famous grotto in Lords, France, and returned with the idea that he wanted to build a grotto as well on the parish property in 1954. And so we had the beginning of, of that, and there's been some parts added to it through the years, but it's sort of the highlight place. If you're going to go there, you, you really can't miss it. Now, today the grotto of Our Lady of Lords is functions really as a, you know, a religious shrine. It's a site for prayer and, and worship. 
The spiritual and historical significance of this particular place was bolstered when Flat Rock was chosen by Pope John Paul II in 1984 as a place that he would visit. And so on September the 12th in 1984, he prayed at the grotto before delivering a sermon from the pulpit in the cliff and then blessing the boats in Flat Rock Harbor. Now, not to be outdone by the Pope, <laughs> I took my position in the grotto pulpit, right? I mean, you know, it just seems right. But I want to tell you that the highlight of our short little visit in the grotto was when we entered the grotto, and there was a, a family there with two young children. And they had a daughter who I'm guessing, and I'm not real good with this, but I, I'm guessing maybe nine, ten years old. And she'd already taken her position in the pulpit and held what you might call a Billy Graham stance, you know, holding on to the pulpit with one hand and waving her, her other hand. She was just giving her, as you'd say in Newfoundland, in this pulpit. And she was preaching and bellowing out to those of us who were down below her gospel message. And I'll tell you the exact contents. She was belting, blah, 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 blah. And Jen said, that's what it usually sounds like, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I consoled myself by telling myself that she wasn't referring to me and my preaching. I dared not ask because I might hear an answer I didn't want to hear. The truth is, it's possible to say a lot of words, but really say nothing. And it's possible to say a few words and say a lot. And so as we consider Jesus' declaration of his mission today from Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, we'll see in these two very short verses that Jesus actually said a great deal that is critically important for us to understand. This was just not another blah, blah, blah moment. What he was saying was something that was critically important for us to understand if we are going to live the mission. So let's look at a few verses together this morning. We're going to start in verse 16. He says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. On rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So let's just take a look at what's going on here. Let's start, <clears throat> I think, with the best place, which would be considering Jubilee. From the very beginning of creation, as we read the creation account, God built into his creation the practice of Sabbath. 
And the principle being that there's more to life than the daily toll of working and earning. And so that rest and relationship with him and each other was deemed by God to be critically important to the functioning of the human race. Now, on top of that, so we have, first of all, then every seventh day is the Sabbath, a day of rest and focus on relationship with him celebrated into family. But added to, this, to that was something God called the Sabbath year. And so Israel was an agricultural society, and every year they were forbidden to prune the vineyards. They weren't allowed to prune the olive trees. They were not allowed to plow the ground or sow into the ground for harvest. The people and the land needed rest, needed recovery. And so God said, whatever the land and the trees produce without any effort on your behalf, you can eat that, but you cannot work the soil. You cannot tend the soil. You cannot prune the trees. You can't put any effort into it. It's a time of rest and recovery. So you have the Sabbath day, you have the Sabbath year. But then added to this was the year of Jubilee. After seven sets of seven, after seven seven-year periods of this one year setting aside, after 49 years, God said the 50th year was to be declared, be declared the year of Jubilee, the ultimate Sabbath, if you will. And God said, you know what? I'm going to provide enough. In that year, you can't even pick what the ground and the trees produce. I'm going to make sure there's enough from before that you can live off that you don't even have to harvest anything in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, that God would provide it. And so the year of Jubilee started with the sounding of the ram's horn. In fact, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for Jubilee is literally ram's horn. That's creative, right? The year of ram's horn. And so it was a proclamation. When that horn blew, it was a, it was a proclamation that jubilee had begun and that now there was a time of liberty and freedom and release and cancellation and return and rest and redeeming of the people and the land. It was understood in Israel that the land belonged to God. And so it was given to the individuals to be stewards of that land. And so if a particular person who was allowed to be a steward of a piece of land found themselves in financial difficulty, they could sell not the land, but the rights to the land, the stewardship to, to harvest that land to someone else. But it could only be sold for the duration of how much time was left between that moment and the year of Jubilee. And so if it was only two years away, what the person would get would be a lot less than if it was 20 years away from the year of Jubilee. Because during Jubilee, land was returned back to the original steward at no charge to them. And if there was a house on the land that was sold as part of the deal, the house was also returned back to the family. And so everything got reset in Jubilee. 
In tough financial times through the years, whole families sold themselves. The dad would come to a creditor and say, I'm selling myself and my whole family into slavery, if you will, into servanthood. We're going to serve you in order to pay off our debts to you. So in essence, we are your servants. We belong to you. But during Jubilee, God said, whatever debt is owing is forgiven. And the families were then released and set free to go back to how life was before. The theme of the year of Jubilee was return, was release or redemption, restoration of people and their property. And the poor and the destitute were the primary beneficiaries during the year of Jubilee because everything they had lost, everything that had been taken from them was given back to them. And so all New Old Testament practices, as we know, pointed forward to a day when those particular Old Testament practices would be fulfilled with the coming Messiah, when Jesus would come. And so we see as an example, there were ongoing regular animal sacrifices that were provided for the forgiveness of sin, but that was fulfilled in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We see in the Old Testament that salvation's emphasis was placed on keeping the law, but in the New Testament that was replaced and fulfilled with salvation that was based on faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We see in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit periodically empowered certain people for certain tasks for a certain period of time. But we see that when we get to the New Testament that we see that the Spirit is outpoured on all believers for all time, not just for moments, not just certain people for certain tasks, but all followers of Jesus. And so in the same light, we have to see the year of Jubilee. This 50-year practice of redemption and restoration and releasing from bondage was replaced and fulfilled with the coming of God's kingdom where people would be restored and redeemed and released on an ongoing daily basis. It wasn't something they had to wait for for 50 years to experience. That every single moment of every single day, there came the possibility that one could be redeemed, released, and restored in in God's kingdom. And so the year of Jubilee pointed to a future breaking in That someday, when God's kingdom started to break in among them, they would see jubilee fulfilled as all those other things had been fulfilled. So then let's look at the context of the scripture. The practice of jubilee had long been lost in Israel. And so the result was that the religious leaders had become increasingly wealthy. The religious elite were very wealthy. But the lower class experienced increasing poverty rejection, and abuse, while the religious elite increased in their power, in their control, and in their their resources. And so Jesus appeared on the scene during a very difficult jubilee breakdown. What was happening there was nothing like God had intended for the culture that his people would live in. Now Luke goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and the word Messiah means the anointed one. And so, he goes to great lengths. We see it 
as the activity of the Holy Spirit unfolds in the Gospel of Luke, we see it. The Spirit comes upon Mary, and, and, and so she conceives Jesus. He's conceived by the Spirit. Mary break, you know, Mary, the Spirit comes upon Mary, and she breaks forth in prophetic song. The Spirit comes upon Elizabeth, and she prophesies. The Spirit comes upon Zechariah, and he prophesies. The Spirit comes upon John while he's still in his mother's womb. So even in the birth narrative, we see the Holy Spirit's work just more than, than you could ever imagine taking place. But then we also see it at his dedication. He's taken to the temple eight days later, and Simeon, who was promised that he would live to see the Messiah is holding Jesus in his arms, and he is then, it says that, you know, he is filled with the Spirit, and he prophesies. And then from there, we see the story picking up of Jesus being baptized by John in the wilderness, and we see it again. Jesus is baptized, and the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends on him as he starts his ministry. In the summer, we looked at the testing of Jesus. And from that moment, at, the, at that high point at the baptism, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit. Not, and we said in the summer, it wasn't just to the wilderness, but it was also through the wilderness in that temptation. And so we're seeing this at every stage of the story of Jesus because He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And so as we pick up the Scripture here, it says now that He's done with the testing, He's led in the power of the Spirit, to Nazareth on this Sabbath day that we'll be considering today. The fact that Jesus begins this passage, in fact, he begins, so all of that, and then Jesus himself declares, he says, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is upon me, and he has anointed me to carry out the mission of the kingdom. Now, Jesus, we're told, had been teaching in their synagogues, and people praised him, and his reputation began to spread in the surrounding area. And so, when he returned to his hometown as he was led by the Spirit in Nazareth, we're told it was the Sabbath, and he went into the synagogue, as was his practice to do. Now, synagogue services were prescribed, had a prescribed pattern. They weren't just whatever, let's just do whatever. No, there were very specific things that happened in a very specific order. And so, a synagogue service would begin with the reading from a portion of the law. Next came a reading from the prophets. And as that began to transition to the reading from the prophets, we're told that Jesus stood up and is standing up was a sign that he wanted to participate and help officiate. And this wasn't uncommon. It was customary to give opportunity to visiting rabbis to participate in the service. And so Jesus was popular, and so they said, sure, go ahead, read the Scripture. Now, the readings for all of these services were predetermined. So, it wasn't as if Jesus decided, I think I'll talk about this today. This was the next reading in the prescribed order of service on this particular Sabbath, Isaiah 61. And so, Jesus stood and he, he read the text. And once he was finished, he sat down. 
Because the custom was that you read the Word of God standing, but you would sit when you would preach or explain what that Scripture would mean or to make comment on it. So it says that he read it, and he sat down, and all eyes are on him, and they're waiting to see what is Jesus going to say. And in that moment, Jesus drops the bomb in this room, and he says, today what I read from Isaiah 61 that you have read so many times in your synagogues and in your families, today this prophet has been fulfilled before your very eyes because I am the one to whom this scripture is written about. I'm the one. He was the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the subject of the prophecy. And his message, we're told, was, his message was delivered in such power and conviction that we're told that they received it and they were excited about it in that moment. Now, the final thing I want to talk about then is mission. What exactly did Jesus read? What did he say that tells us about the mission that he came to accomplish? Well, if we look at verses 18 and 19, it outlines Jesus' agenda. It outlines his program. It outlines what God had sent him to do. It outlines the mission. And the mission really has three simple parts to it. The first is proclamation. The words preach and proclaim in this text are synonyms. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's standing in a synagogue and he is figuratively blowing the ram's horn. He's declaring that the long-awaited kingdom of God is now breaking in among them before their very eyes. It's not like they thought it would be. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he's telling them that the kingdom of God is breaking in among them. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. I've come to not only restore the jubilee breakdown, but I've come to take it to a level that you have never experienced it before. It's no longer a 50-year event. From this moment on, it's an everyday event. And Jesus will spend the rest of his ministry declaring that the kingdom of God had come in him to them. That this is the year of the Lord's favor. A reference to this idea of jubilee. A new jubilee has arrived. And life from this moment will be forever changed. The second thing is healing. When Jesus declares recovery of sight for the blind, he's no doubt referring to actual physical healing, but he's not just limiting it to blindness. He's referring to miracles and healing in general. Physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing is what he's declaring. Luke portrays Jesus as one who is a prophet who is mighty in both word which is proclaiming the kingdom truth, which we just talked about, but also indeed working of supernatural miracles that support the message he's proclaiming. And so healing in the ministry of Jesus is an affirmation that the kingdom of God has begun to break in on them, and what they will experience and observe is a foretaste of what life is like in the kingdom of God. And as the kingdom begins to break in, healing and miracles become a normal part of spiritual life. 
And so whenever you read of Jesus proclaiming the truth of teaching about the kingdom, he doesn't just teach words, but you see miraculous work supporting his teaching. They go hand in hand. They complement each other. They need one another. And so his, his mission is not just to preach the good news. His message is to demonstrate the good news through miracles and healing. Now, blindness is also a reference to lacking understanding, and so Jesus will heal the blindness of the ignorant and help them see and understand the mysteries of God's kingdom. And then the third aspect is releasing. Jesus references the poor, the prisoners, the oppressed, the broken, and he addresses them within the context of the year of the Lord's favor of Jubilee. All of these words that Jesus is saying, this is jubilee language. Jesus is using jubilee language. Poor, freedom, recovery, release. Jesus is using all of it. It's important to see that God has always elevated the importance of the poor and caring for the poor. Jesus is reiterating that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor. Those who were sick were poor because they couldn't work any longer. By healing them, Jesus released them from the enslavement of poverty, and they went back to work. By offering forgiveness and performing exorcisms, he released people from their spiritual bondage. When he went to the other side and the man was living amongst the tombs, when Jesus delivered him and healed him, what did he say? Go back to your community. Go back to your family. He restored them back into community. Jesus fed the hungry. He elevated the value of those that society rejected by spending time with them. He was moved with compassion when he saw them. The physically poor and the spiritually poor will experience life change in the kingdom of God. So then, what about for us? As we look at what Jesus said his mission was, and as we understand that Jesus made it very clear that he was leaving and that the mission that he had begun would be carried on by his followers under the empowering of the Spirit, what does it mean for us? What does the mission look like for us today? Well, I believe there are three observations. The first is words. Words. Proclamation of words is very important a very important part of living the mission. Followers of Jesus, you and I, have a very important message that needs to be heard. In the midst of a world of hopelessness and despair, brokenness, confusion, ours is a message of hope. Ours is a message of light and purpose. Ours is a message of meaning. Ours is a message of forgiveness and grace. Ours is a message of clarity that is life-changing for people. Our world needs to hear the message, the words of Jesus. Our world needs to hear the message of the kingdom of God. But we have to be careful how we proclaim the words we proclaim and what words we proclaim. The very word gospel means what? Good news. When we share the gospel, we share 
the good news. Sometimes people think the gospel is the bad news. Well, let me tell you the bad news of what's going to happen to you. No, it's the good news. (laughs) And the church and followers of Jesus are often viewed by culture as condemning, critical, accusatory, negative. And there's a reason for that. We sometimes are. Maybe we even often are. Our culture is not hungry for criticism. Our culture doesn't awake in the morning and go, oh, if I could just find someone who could criticize me today. Our culture is not looking for condemnation. Our culture is hungry for hope, truth, forgiveness, love, the good news, the gospel. And Jesus understood this. He got it. He knew that. The religious establishment, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Their focus was always on what they were against. I I met a pastor one time, and I said, have you ever gone to that church? And they said, yeah, I went there. And I said, so so what do you think? He says, well, I don't know what the pastor is for, but I know what he's against. All he ever talks about is what he's against. That's what happens when you get caught up in the religious component of faith. Their focus was always on what they were against. They lived their lives every day. I need to put my energy in today in making sure people know that I'm against it. Right? You're either for it or you're against it, right? And so today we're going to set out to tell people what we're against. We're going to let people know who we're against. We're against you. We're against you. That was their day. They set out every day to say, we're going to walk around today and observe the shortcomings of people, and we're going to point out for them how they're messing it up. That was their lives. In the meantime, Jesus walks into this, and Jesus' mission demonstrated not what he was against. Jesus spent his time communicating what he was for and who he was for and how all who were broken and sinful could find acceptance and forgiveness and hope and another chance. The words we speak and how we speak the words we speak have a powerful influence on whether the gospel is impacting or not. The words we speak and how we speak these words have a powerful influence on whether the gospel is received. Folks, some of our most impacting words, some of our most exciting opportunities are not going to come in random moments where with strangers, we're telling them in the moment what they need to do and what they should be, but in those moments of investing in relationship with people, building trust with people, earning our right to be heard because we've invested in their lives, genuinely caring for them. And I would suggest this morning that our greatest asset of words is not the fact that we can quote 30 scriptures completely out of context, I might add, in most cases. But our greatest asset of words is the story of this is who I was. And one day in my life, I met Jesus. And Jesus changed my life. The good news of the gospel radically changed who I was from the core of my being. 
Those are the words that we have to share. We may not be able to debate. We may not be able to prove certain things, but we know what Jesus did for us and what he can do for others. Words are important in living the mission. It's important to use our words. We say that to our kids, right? Use your words. Use your words. But deeds, deeds, deeds are also important. An important part of living the mission. Jesus' ministry demonstrated that words are important, but in themselves, they're not enough. They must be accompanied by deeds. James tells us that faith without works is dead. That belief and action go together. They're inseparable. Well, Jesus' ministry tells us that words and deeds go together. That truth and a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power go hand in hand. So just as faith without works is empty, so are words without a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need the anointing of the Spirit. We need the empowering of the Spirit if we're going to effectively live the mission. Because what we proclaim and believe must be demonstrated in our lives as the Holy Spirit works in and through us. Now, there are a lot of churches that don't believe that they believe that the day of miracles is past. I don't believe that. For the record, I don't believe that the day of miracles is past. I believe that today is a day of miracles. Some churches say that the Holy Spirit's work was necessary in the early church when God was forming and creating His church, but then when we got to the point where the Scripture, the canon of Scripture came together and the Bible was now published, that the Holy Spirit's work in the early church no longer was needed to function as it did back then. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that to live the mission in the king i believe that to live the mission in the kingdom of god we need the empowering of the spirit we need the work of the holy spirit just as much today as they did in the early church if we don't have the empowering of the holy spirit we'll never live the mission with effectiveness we need the wisdom of the spirit instead of depending on the wisdom of of man we need the leading of the Spirit instead of charting our own path with what we think sounds good. We need the power of the Holy Spirit instead of operating in our own talents and our own experiences and our own abilities. If we stop seeing the miraculous, if we stop seeing the Holy Spirit moving, if we stop seeking the presence of God among us when we gather, folks, we're in trouble. Because at that point, the mission is ineffective. Deeds, the miraculous, are an important part of living the mission. Words are important, but deeds must accompany. Equally as important to the words. And third, justice. The religious establishment in Jesus' day had created a standard of spirituality that all God-fearing people were expected to follow. Jesus came on the scene, and he broke all the rules. He broke all their rules. He was viewed by them as one who was not living up to the spiritual expectation of God. 
They set the rules, but when the rules were broken, Jesus wasn't living up to God's expectation. When people broke them, they weren't living up to God's expectation. Jesus went to all the wrong places. He ate with all the wrong people. He made room for sinners. And they looked at him and said, he doesn't even understand the mission of God. Because if he knew who he was associating with, there's no way he could do that. And so they rejected him. There's no way this guy is the Messiah. That's blasphemy because he's not living up to our expectations, so he must be wrong. Well, the truth is it was the religious elite, elite that didn't understand the mission. It's important to understand that the poor, the broken, the sinful, the victims have always been a priority with God. God has always been about restoring and releasing and recovering. God has always been a champion of the underdog. Always. And justice is anchored in the very heart of God. You can't know God. You can't serve God. You can't love God and not want to live justice. Because it is anchored in the heart and character of God. And so as his people who carry out his mission, yes, we have to be people who proclaim the good news with our words. We need to be people who operate under the anointing of the Spirit. But for the mission to be complete, we must also be people who are committed to bring justice in the world to those who have no voice. Now, there's a lot of churches and leaders that are afraid of social justice. So much that they're holding conferences and getting signatures from thousands of pastors and churches to reject the church's move towards doing anything in the area of social justice. Because they're afraid that it's going to take away from the gospel. They're afraid. And it's true. We can become so involved in one aspect of the mission that the other aspects are neglected. It can happen with words. We can be so focused on our preaching and declaring truth that we ignore deeds and we ignore justice. We can be so focused on wanting the Holy Spirit to do stuff that we're not sharing the good news and we're not doing justice. And the same way we can focus on justice and not be declaring the truth or seeing the operation of the Spirit. It's not one or the other. It's all of them working together. That's the mission. And so it's true. We can become so involved in one aspect that the other aspects of the mission are neglected. But may I suggest to you this morning that justice is the gospel. It is the gospel. I want to share a story that you shared with me about a few months back when you decided to host an event to invite pastors of all denominations in our area to come to Evangel to learn about ways, a practical way that they could respond to those who have been rescued from human trafficking. And a lot of pastors came, mostly if not all non-Pentecostals, I think if I recall. We're too busy being too spiritual and filled with the Spirit to, sorry, I'll tell you how I really feel in a minute. So all these pastors 
from different denominations gathered in the room. And Jen explained one aspect of, is this bag that, and our ladies have been involved in raising funds for that. And these bags are given to these girls who are rescued out of human trafficking. And, and so the, the presentation's ongoing and people are excited and people are thinking about it and they're, they're having this moment. But someone asked the question, but what about the gospel? And I love the answer that you told me that one of the other pastors spoke up and said, the bag is the gospel. (laughs) The bag is the gospel. That's the point, and that's the point we're missing. Justice is the gospel. It's not just something we do. It's critically important to the holistic gospel is justice. Well, our claim as classical Pentecostals is that we're empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the mission. That's our claim to fame. That's what sets us apart denominationally from all the other Christian denominations. And if that's the case this morning, I want to ask this question. Who then are better positioned to demonstrate justice than we are? If we claim to be filled with the Spirit in order to accomplish the mission, who better than us to demonstrate justice than those who are filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to live the mission? Folks, I would suggest to you this morning that we as a church, as followers of Jesus, as people who are empowered by the Spirit, we should be setting the bar and we should be leading the charge for our work in the area of justice. Crickets. Crickets. We should be setting the bar because our area is infested with human trafficking where girls as young as 11, 12 years old are being trafficked every day along the QEW corridor of men leaving their homes and their families thinking they're going to work, but they're hitting the hotels on the way over. It's an infestation in our area. We should be leading the charge. We should be leading the charge in LGBTQ issues and how the church can lovingly respond in the midst of these challenging times. We should be leading the charge with youth at risk. We should be leading the charge in terms of poverty. We should be leading the charge in issues of mental health, homelessness, hunger, And yes, even the environment, why ridiculous evangelicals are spending their time denying that anything bad is happening to this earth. Shake your head, people, and look around. The environment is struggling. And why we don't worship the earth, let me tell you something. When God created us, he created a perfect world for us to be stewards of. And when sin broke humanity, it broke the earth. But we were still stewards of this earth. And someday God will not only redeem us, he's going to redeem his earth. Read your Bible. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. You don't think God wants us to take care of what he created for us and gave us to enjoy and live? But sometimes as Christians, we're just so spiritual. We don't have time for the environment. Well, maybe we need to set the bar and make time. Who better to respond to what's happening in our culture than people who are filled with the Spirit, who are living the mission. May I suggest, this could be where I get fired. I don't think our RSP is that good. It's easy for you to say, go for it. You're going to support me in retirement? (laughs) May I suggest, 
it might be time to start breaking some of our rules. Not God's rules. Don't break God's rules. Let's break our rules. It might be time to start spending time with people and going places, yeah, to live the mission that the religious elite think is inappropriate. It might be time to break some rules, to go some places and meet some people that for most of our Christianity has been looked down upon. It might be time to become less passionate about issues and become more passionate about people. People, not issues. People. If Jesus did it, why shouldn't we? After all, it's not the well that needs a doctor. It's the sick. Folks, without justice, there is no gospel. Without justice, there is no mission. If you're going to live the mission, justice must be a part of it. I invite our worship team to come back as we wrap up this morning. Folks, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is breaking in among us. Jesus declared that he was the anointed one by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of mission. His mission was restoration, release, recovery through words and deeds and justice. And if we're going to live the mission, we must understand the mission. Our mission is to declare that the kingdom of God is breaking in among us. The words we have to preach. And our desire in the midst of that is to be anointed by the Spirit so that the Spirit works in tandem with our proclamation of the good news, affirming the power of the message. And living the mission means bringing restoration, release, recovery through words, deeds, and justice. God wants us to love the unlovable the rejected, the broken. We look at the stories in the Bible and we think they're wonderful, and they are. Oh yeah, Zacchaeus was changed. The woman at Jesus' feet was changed. The woman caught in adultery was changed. Do you notice something about all the stories? They hadn't changed yet when Jesus loved them. They hadn't changed yet when Jesus took the risk of going against the culture and establishment of his day. Not yet. He did it before they ever indicated whether or not they would even respond. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, they're worth it. They're worth it. They were worth it before they said yes. Not only because they said yes. Would you stand with me this morning? I know I've given you a lot to think about, a lot to potentially disagree with. But you know what? We need to process these things this morning. It's not enough just to keep doing what we always do. 
There's a work to be done. There's a mission to be accomplished. And God's calling it to us, to it. Share the good news. Be filled and empowered with the Spirit. And help people find hope. Even the people that don't seem worthy of it, deserving of it, who are so opposed to what we think and believe. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. So I invite our prayer team to come this morning, and as they come, there may be some of you here today. And there's a need that's so pressing in your life that you just need someone to pray with you and encourage you this morning, and we want to do that. And for some of us this morning, this may be a morning just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts about what we've, what we've been challenged with this morning. God, what does this mean for me? Does it mean anything or everything? What does it mean for me? What do I do now? I encourage you to seek God. See what the Spirit is leading for you in your life this morning. Whether you listen to my words, that's not nearly as important as if you listen to the prompting of the Spirit in your own heart today. So I'm inviting the prayer team to come. And those of you who need prayer, we encourage you to just take a few moments this morning and come.